Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Cookbook author Hetty McKinnon's mother immigrated to Australia from China in the early 1960s. Their house had a bucket of rice under the sink, fish and duck hanging in the backyard, and bitter melon growing in the garden. 
The food was a mix of the expected, fried rice and noodles, and the unexpected, condensed milk on toast. Hetty joins us today to talk about her latest cookbook, To Asia With Love. As a child of an immigrant, sometimes there are language barriers. My Cantonese is, it's rudimentary, really. Um, It's enough to have an okay conversation with my mum, but you can't talk about deep things. So food was our way of really talking to one another, and she loves talking about food with me. Also coming up, we track down the original lighter recipe for fettuccine Alfredo, and Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett tell us about their favorite culinary idioms from around the world. But first, let's head to St. Joseph's Abbey, a Trappist monastery nestled in the hills of Spencer, Massachusetts. Before daylight, the monks living within the abbey stone walls are already praying and chanting. But praying is not all they do at St. Joseph's. The abbey also happens to be home to the Spencer Brewery, one of only 13 active Trappist breweries in the entire world, and the only one in the United States. I talked to Father Isaac Keeley, the brewery director, to learn about the Trappist tradition and life in the monastery. Father Isaac Keeley, welcome to Milk Street. Well, Chris, thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Uh, there's a quote I'd like you to respond to. It says, monastic life is ordinary, obscure, and laborious. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting way of describing it. Maybe you could translate that uh, for us. Oh, sure. Well, first of all, you know, the quote comes from our constitutions. So, uh, you know, our way of life really goes back to uh, 5th century Italian peninsula, rule of St. Benedict. Right. And because we are cloistered, a lot of people don't see us and we don't see a lot of people. So the, the point of that little statement is to kind of demythologize the life for the people who really live it. It's a life of prayer and work, and it kind of, you just follow this rhythm. So we're going to eventually get to the beer, but uh, let's just talk about Trappist monasteries producing things, cheese, bread, etc. This is part of the tradition to support yourself and uh, just part of the notion of labor? Yes. So this whole agricultural connection is kind of in the monastic genes, to tell you the truth. It does function for self-support, but you also need physical activity. And particularly to younger people, it's very important. But even for somebody of my age, um, in a certain sense, <laughs> you got to keep moving, you know, to keep moving. So there's a whole physical side to this, which helps to create a balanced lifestyle. Okay, so beer is a long tradition uh, in monasteries. But I didn't realize, maybe you could just tell the story briefly, that you actually had to get a plan that was approved, right? So you can't just go out and do what you want to do. This is this is regulated within the Trappist tradition, right? You know, Belgium has I don't know, something, over 800 breweries, and a huge percentage of those started with monastic or some other form of religious community that lived in some version of a monastery. By the late 1970s, commercial entities had acquired the rights to all those religiously-based breweries. Only the six Trappist monasteries continued to operate their own breweries. 
And then Big Beer Marketing recognized that Trappists had an authenticity to them for still doing it themselves. And so Big Beer began trying to ride on the coattails of the Trappist breweries. <laughs> somehow or other to declare themselves somehow or other Trappist also. What, what, they actually used the term Trappist in their marketing and packaging? Yeah, and they, they did, and they tried to use images and symbols that only the Trappists right. were using. And, you know, it wasn't nice for a little while. So what the Trappists did was they formed an organization called the International Trappist Association. Hmm. And they were just authenticating products that they had been making for a long time. And then when uh, when we came along, we meaning the American Trappist Brewery, the thought that a Trappist Brewery outside of Europe would brew Trappist beer, that was quite revolutionary in 2010. <laughs> so uh, myself and another brother, we visited all the Trappist Brewing Abbeys in Belgium and Netherlands until everybody was willing to first allow us and then even require us to join the International Trappist Association and to provide us with technical support so that if we were going to do this, we would have the information and fraternal support to really do it right. So what is a Trappist beer? Is it just a style um, of brewing? I mean, is there a definition for it? Okay, Chris, it's, it's a great question. So Trappist is not a style. First of all, that's the, the family name of our monks and nuns. So the beer has to be made at a place where there's a live Trappist community in this brewery that's inside the walls of that monastery, operated by those monks. They don't have to do everything, but it has to be their brewery that they're guiding, they're directing. And the revenue can only be used to support the monastery and its charitable outreach. So that's why we, at Spencer, can do... Our, our holiday ale and our reserve ale and our Trappist ale, but we can do a Pils, we can do a Vienna Lager, we can do a Monk's IPA, we can do an Imperial Stout, because strictly speaking, Trappist isn't a style. So I did last night taste the ale. You know, I'm not a, I don't drink a lot of beer, I drink more wine, but I, it was lovely. You know, it was smooth and buttery and, uh, you know, not too hoppy. And uh, it was actually, delicious. Now, I did notice, though, that you also sell some specialty beers, right, at seasonally? Yes. Yeah, so I, I you have to ask you, the Munster Mash Pumpkin Ale? Yeah. So, okay, so you guys, like, you guys have a sense of humor here. I mean, you, I mean, on one hand, you're talking about this, you know, thousand-year-old tradition of, of making beer, but you also... You have a little fun with us, too. Well, well, we do. So we, so we have these serious, classic Trappist beers, but, you know, the Munster mash was really, um, <laughs> it was a lark. Um, some of the brothers and, and the brewmaster, they just wanted to do a pumpkin beer. And I thought, well, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a if little you do it, go for it. Yeah, well, you, you know, monastic life, you know, you could think of it as it's serious, and it is a serious endeavor. But um, the idea is that a balanced life should be a really happy life. <laughs> yes, I agree. You know, Chris, it's really interesting to me that you were going to say you were 
consumer of alcohol would probably be wine. Here's the story. Before we decided to do the brewery, in the monastery, we would have consumed alcohol only on major feast days or holidays, and typically, we would have served wine. So most of the monks of this monastery, before we did the brewery, if you're going to say, what's your alcoholic beverage of choice, they would have said wine. So when, it, when we got on this project and we were supposed to decide what's going to be the first beer from this new Trappist brewery, its first beer should be a beer for the monks, even though you want to sell it. So we said, well, what's that style? And it's called a potter's beer or a monk's beer or a brother's beer. Typically, it's alcohol of between 4 and 5%. And it has a flavor profile like what you tasted last night. It's a very accessible beer, which, which has flavors typically of fruit and spice. On that beer, the idea was to brew a beer that uh, men who would say they were primarily wine drinkers to win them over on the first beer. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> so you, you kind of confirmed that. So, Chris, I was really delighted to hear that <laughs> comment. <laughs> Father Isaac Healy, uh, thank you. This has been just a great conversation. Thank you. Well, Chris, you know, it's been a, a great pleasure to be here on Milk Street. I've enjoyed this very much. I'm grateful. That was Father Isaac Keeley. He's the brewery director at the Spencer Brewery at St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. It's time for my co-host Sarah Moult and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. You know, Chris, I followed up on a recipe myself from one of our recent calls. Remember we had somebody who likes making gnocchi but didn't want to start with potatoes? She wondered if she could use potato flakes. Yeah, that was... Wild. Well, yeah, but intriguingly wild, I had to say it, but it sounded like a good idea. Right. And we talked about Barbara Lynch's recipe, because, you know, Barbara from South Boston, who's a great chef, and how she had a recipe in Food 52. So I thought, you know, I've never worked with potato flakes I was sort of snobby about it because my mom always made mashed potatoes from real potatoes. And I thought, oh, there must be some faux ingredients in potato flakes. But I read the back of the package, and it just said potatoes. So <laughs> I got Bob's Red Mill potato flakes, and I made those gnocchi. And? and? Drum roll. They were great. No, they were pretty boring. The texture came out just fine. They were easy as can be. But we were all sort of underwhelmed. And then it occurred to me after the fact that potatoes don't have a lot of flavor. I mean, it sort of depends on the potato, but you use high starch potatoes for gnocchi. Maybe my sauce wasn't flavorful enough. The family voted it down. It wasn't terrible. It was perfectly fine. It was sort of fun. Maybe if I'd put them instead mm. in brown butter with sage, I put a marinara sauce on top. So... But now I've got this whole bag of potato flakes I don't quite know what to do with, so I've been thinking about things to do with it. And I'm going to tell you the thing that I know will work, which is to add it as a thickener to soups. You oh, know, that's a good idea. Yeah, because I yeah. usually add a potato. I never right. use flour to thicken right. soups. So I'm sure I could just put the flakes that's in, smart. and that yeah. would do the trick. Yeah. Here's what you should do. Next week, make the gnocchi again. Tell the family that you did it from scratch. And do brown butter and sage. Yeah, you know, I do have sage in-house. And don't give it away. 
you're right. You have to hide the box. Maybe some toasted pine nuts on top. Yeah, and just say, boy, you know, I didn't really like those potato flake ones, but I decided to make from scratch, and I think you're really going to enjoy them. Ah. And see see what happens. Okay, I'm going to give it a whirl. Yeah, okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kate from Des Moines, Iowa. How can we help you? It used to be, you know, you see a recipe, they just call for onions, and they call for a yellow onion or a white onion. And I've noticed that a lot of the recipes now call for red onions. And I was wondering if that was for a particular reason or if that was just fashion or availability or what was behind that. Well, red onions are often called for as a garnish Mm -hmm. because I think they're a little less strong. But you can use any onion. I think, Sarah, you soaked them in cold water. I soaked them in distilled vinegar, but you know, for about 10 or 15 minutes, and you can use them as a garnish regardless of what color they are. If you're going to cook them, I did learn fairly recently that yellow onions are the strongest raw, but the stronger and the more sulfurous the onion in the raw state, the sweeter it is when cooked. So the best onion to buy if you want a sweet product at the end would be yellow. But if you're just going to you know, use this on a taco or something, a red onion's fine. But essentially, they're all really pretty much interchangeable as long as you soak them quickly to begin with. Sarah? Yeah, I agree. We all go in fads. Foodies do. And suddenly there's Mm -hmm. the it vegetable of the moment. And I've noticed in a lot of recipes I've seen recently in magazines, they call for red onions even when they're going to be cooked. I like them for their color, you know, as a garnish for a salad. Or if you do add vinegar to them, as Chris does, it turns them this beautiful sort of jewel-like pink color. Yeah, and I kind of had wondered if that was what was behind it. Because I've noticed in some of my newer cookbooks and my revised editions that now where they used to call for yellow or white, they call for red onions. I think it's just a fad, frankly. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll just stick to my white onions. <laughs> yes, do. And they're far more affordable and you can get them in a bag and, you know. Yeah. You know, it's just some recipes that just seems more prevalent than others. It's like red onion, red onion, red onion. And it seems to just have no reason behind it. So the reason is just marketing. I guess I know now. Kate, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You too. Take Bye. Care. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a culinary problem, give us a call. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or you can email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Heather. Hi, Heather. How can we help you? Hi, I'm calling because I work as a crew cook on a chef, a 100-foot boat now. I've worked on Mm -hmm. up to 200 feet and down to 50. On each of the ones, I've had different issues with using scales. My first job was in Greece and I needed to use BBC recipes to cook for British people. And this is for dry measurements, ran out and bought a digital scale. And yeah, just, they don't work on boats because the numbers run up and down due to the motion um, or buoyancy. I have no idea. And um, so I had a couple of ideas for what might work for dry measurements at sea on yachts. Um, One of them was maybe just to ask what kind of scale you think I could try and the other is, is if there's a dry measurement cup size, say like 16th or 8th or something that was common enough, what kind of cups you would go out and get if you were in the same position? Wow. Well, first of all, let's start with this dark science. I know boats are always in motion even when docked, mm-hmm. but I don't quite understand 
why gravity doesn't work when a scale is in motion. I would do everything with volume measurements, which are not as accurate, but you can get eighth of a cup and we get as many differentiated cups as you possibly can, get a couple sets of them, including all the tablespoons down to an eighth teaspoon, and just convert everything over. You can find it online. You know, like a cup of flour, all-purpose should be 130 grams, for example. Okay, just like print off a conversion sheet, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and then you can round it off a little bit. But why you can't use a digital scale on a boat, I just don't quite understand it. Yeah, I don't even think you can use a, a regular scale, like with weights on either side. It would theoretically sort of never be even if the boat was never 100% Still, the one that I actually just happened to pick up when we were provisioning the other day was in the grocery aisle called a diet scale, and it weighs from the top down, if that makes sense. But the internal weight might still be left to right or, you know, horizontal. You make a good point because that's kind of like a fish scale, right? You hold it up. Yeah. It's pulling down instead of weighing down. Mm -hmm. And even Mm -hmm. if the boat was moving, which it is, that might actually work. I never thought of that. That's a good idea. But, you know, the backup method is just to use volume, which is something we never suggest. But in your case, on a boat, <laughs> yeah. could you try that scale, the top down? Because I'd like to know. That would be really interesting. Absolutely. Heather, first of all, I wanted to comment on how cool a job you have. Do you love it? Yeah. I love, like, cooking on the anchor, looking at beautiful seas and listening to food podcasts. It's very cool. Heather, uh, we envy you. Yeah. It's a cool job. And try that other scale, let us know. Yeah, I think do that let us know. I will. Yeah. I okay. will. And I love listening to you guys out there. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, I would love this podcast, this radio show, a lot better if I was listening to it on a 200-foot yacht <laughs> somewhere off the Bahamas. Yeah, I think it would just make it so much better. Yeah, perhaps sipping in an old-fashioned, you know? Yeah, yeah. sipping in old-fashioned. Nice. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's cookbook author Hetty McKinnon on her latest book, To Asia with Love. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this 
dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Year Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with cookbook author Hetty McKinnon. Her latest book is called To Asia with Love. Hetty, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, you have a, a fascinating backstory, I guess you'd call it. Your parents mm. immigrated to Australia from Guangdong Province, um, and you, but you grew up in the suburb of Sydney. Um, so <laughs> could you just talk a little bit about that? Because uh, it, it just sounds really interesting. Yeah, I mean, my parents are from um, Guangdong Province, um, a little place called Zhongshan, and um, they came to Australia in the late 50s, early 60s, and they got married there and, you know, they had three children. We lived in the suburbs on a street that was predominantly white Australian, and there were three Chinese families in on that street, and it, we were all related. Um, it was my aunt next door, and um, us, and then my grandmother down on the corner. So it was um, a very 
Chinese upbringing, you know, um, at home we spoke Cantonese, we ate a Chinese banquet for dinner every single night. My mother cooked elaborate Asian breakfasts every morning. And so living between these two cultures was something that I had always done and perhaps didn't really think about it much when I was a kid. But I do remember thinking it was hard because the moment I left the, my front door, I had to become this or had to try to become as Australian as I possibly could. You know, you try to speak English like everybody else and eat the types of foods that they eat in the school playground. And so there, there is this kind of dual life that um, was is not unusual, but is something that I really just started reckoning it with as I became, you know, more interested in food. But it was a really idyllic kind of um, upbringing. You know, we it, it's different growing up in an immigrant family because it's not like we do a lot of activities. Our lives were very domestic. My mum never really took us out and went to the park or she didn't really do things like that with us. But what she did do for us is she cooked and she cooked with fervor and um, great enthusiasm and every single meal there was no such thing as having you know sandwich night (laughs) you know every meal was just so elaborate and so much preparation and she was like so committed to that act of um, cooking things the way she remembered them and um, back then, as a as a child, you know, there's not things that you really appreciate. You know, you just think, wonder what it would be like to have a bowl of cornflakes for breakfast. Were your parents the first to come over in your extended family or were there already people living in Sydney before they got there? No, they were the first. So um, my mother came to Australia specifically to get married. Um, my father had come when he was a little bit in his teens to to work. And um, my father actually passed away when I was a teenager. So his history is not as um, as you know uh, clear in in my in my family and in my knowledge as my mum's history is. Um, but they they came to Australia for a better life. My mum's passage to Australia was a fairly at times treacherous one. This is the way my mum describes it. The boys were on top of the ship and the girls were down the bottom. Um, (laughs) And, you know, that's the kind of very little stories, you know, it's very hard to get these stories out of that generation that experienced so much, you know, um, so much hardship. And it's often common amongst immigrants not to really want to look back. Um, But, you know, she... She left China, was in Macau for a little while and passage to Hong Kong and then was in Hong Kong for a number of years. I don't know exactly how many, I would say two to three years. She still has family in Hong Kong. And then from Hong Kong, she came to Australia to marry my dad. But, you know, a lot of the food that she cooks is, I would say, southern southern Chinese and Hong Kong meals. And I could never understand why she loved condensed milk. She always has some in the fridge. Mm. And when I was in Hong Kong a few years ago, I, I was in some of the Cha Chan Tens and they had condensed milk on everything. So um, it, it made a lot of sense to me after I revisited Hong Kong. Well, and you have a recipe for the condensed milk on toast or bread, I think. In the exactly, book, right? exactly. Right. I, I thought that condensed milk on toast was 
an idiosyncrasy of my mother's. I thought, oh, she's just, you know, this is something that she's made up. Of course, she just loves that condensed milk. But when I went to Hong Kong, it was served in cafes everywhere, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I love your description of the house because it says so much. You said uh, your house had a giant microwave, a dishwasher used for storage only, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a bucket of rice under the sink, mm-hmm. a backyard garden with chilies and winter melon, and fish and duck hanging to dry out next to the laundry. So that uh, that one sentence pretty much describes your childhood in some ways, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was food for present and food for the future. You know, my mum was before preserving and fermenting was cool. It's just the way that her generation ate. You know, nothing was wasted. And, you know, next to our freshly laundered clothes, there would be fish and duck being preserved mm. for future meals. And we, we haven't even mentioned my mum's uh, three freezers. She has three freezers throughout the house with uh, meats, shrimp, fish, mm. wontons that she's pre-wrapped, dumplings that she's pre-wrapped. My mum could pull out a, you know, f- fairly impressive banquet just with things that she already has in the house or in her freezers. So it's a very different way of, of living. Let's talk about you. You started your food career delivering, I like this, delivering salads to people in the Sydney suburbs by bicycle. Mm-hmm. Was, was that a death-defying <laughs> uh, career? How, how did you get the idea of delivering salads by bicycle? Well, Chris, I really entered into this without much thought at all really uh, it wasn't a um it wasn't a dream of mine to be in food i was working in pr prior to this and i had three children quite quickly and so i guess there was a different need um i wanted something where that kept me within the home surprisingly um having worked in, in PR and suddenly I, I found myself like thinking, I actually want to be at home. Like I want to do something that um, allows me to be with my children, to be with my within my community. And so uh, I've been a vegetarian for 25 years, so a long time. And at that time I was, this was about 10 years ago, I was starting to, to really learn to cook and learn to put flavors together and put ingredients together and and the, the type of food I was eating at home, I, I really wanted to share that with other people. So that was really the, the genesis of Arthur Street Kitchen, which was my salad delivery business. Twice a week, I cooked salads at home on my own, but my mum would come and help sometimes. <laughs> and I would pile them on the back of my bike and deliver them just in my local neighbourhood. And so when my customers started asking for recipes, I started writing them down and some, you know, emailing to them because they wanted to cook it for their friends. And so that's how my career in writing recipes started. And that led to a book um, called Community, which was uh, self-published initially um, in 2013, I think. I self-published this book and uh, it was a thousand copies, I think. But inexplicably they sold out in like two two and a half three weeks all across Australia people were ordering it on my website and it was just this weird phenomenon that I didn't really understand to this day I don't really understand it to be honest how many copies are in print now 
Uh, over a hundred thousand. It's <laughs> it's been a huge hit in Australia. Um, at that time, I was like, I don't know how to deal with you know all this attention. I just want to cook. You know, I don't want to do all these other things. I've noticed some of your recipes. Just I don't know. I just I love the sound of them. Like udon with soft boiled egg, hot soy, mm. and black pepper, or cacio e pepe udon noodles. Yes. Want to just talk about the udon cacio e pepe, which I guess makes perfect sense. It's just a different noodle. Oh, wow. That has been a recipe I've wanted to do for years, for years. And I, I just, um, when I thought of this book, I was like, perfect. I've got somewhere to put it. But um, cacio e pepe is such a, just a, a beautiful combination and so simple. And I thought it goes really well with a really toothsome mouthful of a noodle and that's what right. udon is and so it just is just a classic kind of east meets west dish so you you like vegemite obviously i do you put it in your brownies um so <laughs> what explain to me what vegemite does to your brownies that you like so much so vegemite for those listeners who don't know is a sandwich spread in australia and it's um it's very salty and and a bit kind of uh yeasty I guess but in brownies it brings out so you know the idea of adding salt to chocolate makes it Mm -hmm. taste more chocolatey well the Vegemite does the same thing Mm -hmm. and it also um, adds this nice caramel flavor to it. So the walk let's talk about walks you you, um, love your mother's walk it's 40 years old I have two questions Uh, Mm -hmm. if you have a typical stovetop gas stovetop Yep. How do you get enough heat into the wok? So if you're stir-frying protein, meat or something, whatever, or lots of vegetables, you're a vegetarian, yep. Um, yep. can you actually stir-fry to get enough heat into the metal so you can actually stir-fry or are you just going to end up steaming? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely you can get enough heat. I, I have um, a cast iron. It's quite a thin one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have a normal gas stovetop. I mean, I think you really do need gas. And then you heat it. You have to heat it until you can see the wisp of smoke coming off. And then it's hot enough. So, okay, I'm talking to the expert here. How do you season and and take care of your wok? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the seasoning, I didn't season my wok because it was I inherit, my mum gave it to me. It's like 40, 45 years old or something. Um, so it's been around, it's actually been around the world, this walk. Right. But my mum's trick is, and I will preface this by saying it's not based in on any science, but she seasons it with a bunch of greens. So she'll put hmm. water, just a, a splash of water, like not a whole wok of water, and she'll season it with the greens first. Hmm. Then she throws it out. And then she'll burn it with uh, oil and, and just heat. So basically, a wok is better seasoned the more you use it. So I don't probably use my wok enough. Every time my mum sees my wok, she often calls on FaceTime and asks to see my wok. <laughs> and she'll look. <laughs> and she'll. Uh, she's a very Asian mum. No, not your kids, <laughs> just the wok. Yeah, right? Well, she'll see the kids after, but she'll, she will oh, ask okay. to see the wok. Walk first. <laughs> Um, but she'll see the walk and she'll say, oh, you don't use it much, do you? And she'll say something like that. And and it's true. Like my walk is so precious to me that I probably don't use it enough. Has your relationship with your mother changed a lot now that you are the, well, you are a cook in the family, I guess. (laughs) You talk a lot about cooking food based on what she prepared when you were young. 
Yeah. Has this relationship matured or changed in some way in the last 10 years? Completely, you know, completely changed. When I started to cook, when, when I had the um, salad delivery business, was the first time that I actually cooked alongside my mother. My youngest was a baby at the time, so she would come to really look after him. But when she was there, she would, you know... I, I'm doing kind of air quotes right now. She would show me how to peel vegetables and how to the correct way of washing Asian greens because my mum's very particular about those things. And it was the first time I really saw my mother in a different light, like beyond just being my mum. Cooking alongside her, we would talk. Uh, she would tell me about her friends or tell me about things that she remembered from when she was young. So the just being in the kitchen with her brought out more stories, um, brought out a different side of her personality where I saw myself in her and her in me. And um, it was an incredible thing. And it, it was through the food. You know, we are two women that grew up in different times. And as a child of an immigrant, sometimes we there are language barriers. My Cantonese is, you know, it's okay. It's rudimentary, really. Um, it's enough to have an okay conversation with my mum, but you can't talk about deep things. Mm. And that's something that a lot of um, children of immigrants experience is, is actually that language barrier with, with your parents. Um, so food was our way of really talking to one another. And she loves talking about food with me. She loves asking me what I'm cooking for dinner and how I'm going to make it. And when I was cooking the salads, she actually experienced a whole new world of food because she only really ate Chinese food or Asian food. And when I was cooking the salads, I was making Middle Eastern flavors and spices that she had never eaten before or, you know, she'd never eaten eggplant that wasn't steamed. I was serving her these eggplant that had been coated in spices and roasted. And so it was a new sensation for her. So I think we definitely became, I think, more as equals when I started cooking. Hey, it's been a, it's just a great pleasure having you on Mill Street. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I've, I've loved all the things that you've raised. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. That was Hetty McKinnon. Her latest cookbook is To Asia With Love, Everyday Asian Recipes and Stories from the Heart. You know, the buzzword in the food world is authenticity. Now, that's a term that implies some golden standard by which iconic recipes have to be judged. Hetty McKinnon points us in another direction. Recipes are a mashup from culture to culture, from generation to generation. Hetty McKinnon's children will grow up thinking that udon, cacio e pepe, is absolutely authentic. And that's because what your mother cooked is, in fact, the only authentic food in the world. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, fettuccine Alfredo. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you and I were talking about Italy recently, that every time you go there, you discover that what you thought you know is not right. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Which either says something about you or Italy, but I think it says something about (laughs) Italy. And we talked about fettuccine Alfredo, and it turns out that the real story is nothing like what I thought. So... 
let's start with your trip to Rome. Yeah, and actually, I mean, Americans think they understand. So it's not, not just us, by the way. Americans think they understand what Fettuccine Alfredo is. And the reality is that Fettuccine Alfredo in the United States is wildly different from Fettuccine Alfredo in Italy. And actually, neither of them is that great. You've got to go back in history to find the real and the really good Fettuccine Alfredo. So what you're saying is if you go to Rome and get Fettuccine Alfredo, that's still not the real Fettuccine Alfredo? Well, it depends <laughs> on how you interpret that. So there are two restaurants in Rome that have competing and quite legitimate claims to being the original Fettuccine Alfredo restaurant. We have to go back to about 1914, and a guy named Alfredo Di Lelio has a restaurant in Rome called Alfredo Alla and his wife just gives birth. She's not feeling so well. So he reaches back for a recipe that has been dated to at least the 1400s that is simply huh. called Roman macaroni. <laughs> and it's nothing more than pasta, butter, salt, and cheese. He feeds this to her. It restores her vitality after birth. And she insists that he put it on the menu. Now, nothing comes of it until around 1920 when a couple of American actors, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, show up, love it so much that all of their friends and fans start swarming the restaurant for years to come. Thus was born Fettuccine Alfredo, which is a tangle of fresh egg fettuccine, butter, Parmigiano Reggiano cheese, water, and salt. Nothing more. Not the heavy cream, not the chicken, not the carrots, not the mushrooms, all the stuff that you see in American versions. It's a very simple dish. So you went to Rome and you mm -hmm. went to these restaurants. Is that what they made, that simple dish? They do. They do. And what happened, actually, there are these two restaurants, you know, Delelio had to go into hiding during World War II, and so he sold his restaurant to two of his staff. Their grandchildren still run it today, still make the same dish. Well... Later on, around 1950, Delelio comes back and he opens a new restaurant, Il Vero Alfredo, the true Alfredo, just a few minutes away. And there they make the same dish and his daughter and granddaughter still make the same dish today. And yes, it is the original dish that he had served for so long at both restaurants. Minor differences. And actually at El Vero Alfredo, they actually put a little bit less cheese and a little bit less butter. And that was the first clue. This is a little bit better because it wasn't quite as, you know, kind of gut-wrenchingly heavy, which this dish tends to be both in Italian and in American versions. So just so I'm clear, there's no cream in this recipe. In Never any cream. That's an American thing, and okay. it's not a good thing. I was actually talking to Delelio's daughter and granddaughter and saying, you know, why is it that Italians always claim they don't eat fettuccine Alfredo? And they said, well, it's both true and not true, because they don't actually eat fettuccine alfredo. These restaurants tend to cater to tourists. But again, remember, this recipe dates back to 1400s, and Italians simply know it by other names. And it goes by a couple of them, you know, pasta in bianco, white pasta, burro e parmigiano, butter and cheese. But my favorite, and here's where the real clue came in, pasta pancia sconvolta, upset belly pasta. <laughs> Italians really do eat fettuccine Alfredo, and particularly young Italians, because it's what their moms make them when they have an upset really? belly. 
Yeah. Now, who, who would think that Alfredo would be the ideal for an upset stomach? Exactly. Well, you know, Alfredo did because he fed it to his wife when she wasn't feeling so great. (laughs) And so that sent me on a new path because, you know, these fettuccine Alfredos served at these two restaurants, you know, are really, really heavy. And I'm thinking, okay, no upset belly is going to handle that. So my search for the true, the real, the better fettuccine Alfredo then took me up to Parma, Italy. Because I wanted to understand Parmigiano-Reggiano, the cheese at the heart of this recipe. And so I went to a dairy where they had me taste, you know, dozens of different Parmigiano-Reggianos. And the thing that came away from this is that this is definitely a case where less is more. And that was the problem with these restaurants in Rome. They were just like piling on the cheese and butter, so much so that it was blowing away your ability to appreciate any of them. So when someone makes this at home, the authentic version is just less fat, there's less cheese and less butter? Yes, and more motion. That was the thing. You know, there's a real dramatic presentation of this dish at both restaurants where they toss the warm fettuccine with the butter and the Parmigiano-Reggiano right at your table, and they make quite a show of it. And I thought, well, it's probably just a show. Like, why are they doing that? But as you said... A home cook always knows best. And so I actually headed to a small town about 30 minutes north of Rome, Castelnuovo di Porto, where I found a home cook, Francesca Guccione, who knew nothing about fettuccine Alfredo. But she did know something about pasta in Bianco. She'd made it for her daughter growing up. And so she took me through her version of what we know as fettuccine Alfredo. And she used a lot less butter, a lot less cheese, and a lot more motion. She tossed those noodles and the butter and the cheese for many minutes. And that was really key because she was relying on the starch and the cooking water from the pasta to add a creamy body that nonetheless was light, you know, not larded up with all that fat. And her version of fettuccine Alfredo, although she doesn't call it that, was absolutely stunning, light and rich and creamy all at once. Now, does she cook the pasta like in two quarts of water instead of four to get more starch in the water? Absolutely, yeah. She cooked it in probably half or maybe even less of the water that we would typically use to cook pasta. And then she used a whole lot of that water when she was tossing the noodles with the butter and the cheese. So once again, you go to Italy and you come back with something that nobody knows over here. I don't know why. Sam, thank you. (laughs) The true fettuccine Alfredo, less butter, less cheese, more pasta water, and a lot more motion. Thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for fettuccine Alfredo at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up next, Grant Baird and Martha Barnett tell us about their favorite food-inspired idioms from around the world. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com.
You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Contrary to popular belief, it is not necessary to soak dry beans. Soaking basically does two things. Rehydrates the beans so they cook a little bit quicker, and if you discard the soaking liquid, leach out a lot of the oligosaccharides that cause gas. What will cause your beans to not cook properly is using an acidic solution, like a tomato sauce, or if your beans are too old or stored improperly. If you didn't have the foresight to soak beans the day before, just cook them. Provided you have a couple of hours, you'll be fine. And don't even get me started on hot soaking. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips.
Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett. They're hosts of Away With Words. Grant and Martha, how are you doing? Hey, Chris. We're doing great. Fantastic, Chris. Nice to talk to you. So you're going to surprise me today, right? I hope so. <laughs> how do you like sausage, Chris? Uh-oh. This is, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> I, I like it 30% fat. Maybe you need to say, es ist mir Wurst. Es ist mir Wurst? It's sausage to me. <laughs> that is what the Germans say when they couldn't give a fig or they don't care. I would say, das ist mein Wurst. Like, get your hands off my sausage. <laughs> The Germans really do love their sausage. There's so many expressions uh, in German that have sausage in them, Um, expressions that translate as poor sausage, meaning poor guy or poor gal, or little sausage, kleines Würstchen, ridiculous sausage. They just can't get enough sausage in, in, in their language. But they're not only about sausages. They also talk about cookies. Martha, you're slowly getting on oh, my nerves, darling. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to have gotten on your cookie. Die Sache get mir langsam auf den Keks, mein darling. And Keks's cookie. Keks's cookie. Keks's cookie, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're really irritating, then you're getting on someone's cookie. And then they also talk about tomatoes. That's that's a very common expression in German. Tomaten auf dem Augen haben, which means to have tomatoes on one's eyes, to be oblivious. That's good. Well, it goes back originally when it was first used, it meant um, that you were sleepy or bleary-eyed mm-hmm. or red-eyed because the right. ideas with the very right. red eyes looked like kind of like red huh. tomatoes. And there's old German school slang, which for being stupid, you might say something like you have tomatoes on your glasses. Yeah, I don't know why we haven't picked that up in English. I think it's terrific. <laughs> so what, what what else do the Germans have in the, in the food category? Oh, goodness. Oh, How much time yeah. do you have, Chris? Let's see. Well, lots of sausage. Well, you know, everything has an end, Chris, but only a sausage has two. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's one of theirs. <laughs> yeah. That's some wisdom. So, so did they burn a sausage at both ends? <laughs> we'll have to call the Germans and ask them. I think you're mixing <laughs> your metaphors. <laughs> but, you know, uh, besides German, there's also some fun stuff in Arabic and Czech. Yeah. In uh, certain varieties of Arabic, you'll hear bukrafil mishmish, or just fial mishmish. And mishmish is a kind of apricot that has a brief blooming season. And it's Hmm. really, really delicious when it's first picked. But the very next day, it goes mushy and unappetizing. And that phrase translates as something like, tomorrow, apricots. Hmm. And what that means is you've got to go for the gusto when the apricots come in season, and that's going to be, you know, like one day, basically. I love that term, mishmish. Mm-hmm. Mishmish. That's nice. Yeah. So it's not quite apricots, but the Czechs have a saying, pack your five plums. It means get your things <laughs> together and get out. Yeah. <laughs> That's something like But what's interesting is that in German, instead of saying pack your five plums, you say pack your seven plums and get out of here. Germans always one-upping people. Or two <laughs> the, people. the Germans had a better economy than the Czechs, obviously. Yeah. All right. Here's one you got to remember, Chris. I love this one. Czech speakers. Right. When they're describing something or someone that is kind of ordinary or unremarkable or someone who is indecisive, They'll describe them as nemasni neslani, which means not fatty, not salty, neither one thing nor the other. Kind of hmm. neutral. And it's lovely. It's kind of like yeah. the French would say, ni figue ni raison, neither fig nor grape. So oh, these I two like expressions that. more or less in Czech and French mean the same thing. I like the, the fatty, not salty is better. That's mm-hmm. really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good. And Chris, we can leave you with our favorite Irish proverb involving carrots because it's it's really good advice. 
Are you ready? This is advice I obviously need, right? You might. You might. Okay, here we go. It's never bolt your door with a boiled carrot. (laughs) Ever. Excellent, excellent (laughs) advice. It's actually a punchline, part of a punchline to an old riddle. Question, what's a very good definition of nonsense? Answer, bolting a door with a boiled carrot and melting butter in a wig. Oh, man. Again, very sensible. Well, okay, if I have any boiled carrots after dinner, I'm not going to bolt the door. (laughs) Great, Martha, thank you so much. Uh, Neither fatty nor salty, but I still liked it. Chris, you are both figs and grapes. Thank you. See you next time. (laughs) That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. You know, I spent some time in Sweden in the 1980s, and in addition to drinking a lot of Aquavit and eating pitapana, I did fall in love with their expressions. My favorite is, which I think means to slide in a shrimp sandwich. That is someone who got all the rewards without doing any of the work. And yes, it does sound a whole lot better in Swedish. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, which is Tuesday night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. Intern, Emily Kunkel. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.